the folks recently arrived in Spain. They left as evangelists, as we know, sent out from our church to partner with us as ambassadors of Christ in Salamanca, Spain. They leave with our support under our watch care, and they leave on the mission, first of all, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. They also leave to build up the church of Jesus Christ and then to exalt His name in all that they do. The folks recently posted a video I'd like us to watch for two reasons. One, just for our own information to to keep us updated on what is taking place in our ministry together in Spain. But more pointedly here to illustrate a concept that will lead us into the text of 1 Peter 2 today. This is what they call killing two birds with one stone. So uh, the information's helpful, but I think also it illustrates a point. I'd like you to watch it carefully for what is happening in their life, but also to note uh, specifically the connections that they are making and what they're coming to understand about the culture in which they live. Let's uh, watch this together and uh, rejoice together in what the Lord has done to bring them to Spain. Hello from Salamanca, Spain. Uh, we're taking this video from the Roman bridge that goes over the River Tormes here in Salamanca. This bridge itself is 2,000 years old. It dates back to the first century. And from here, you can see the cathedral that is downtown. We just wanted to do this update so that our friends and family and partners could hear about our recent transition here to Salamanca. We've recently been able to find our own piso or apartment, which was relatively quick. Um, here in the country. So we're thankful that God provided that for us. We're learning about um, where the stores are and trying to get settled in. We have been able to be a part of the Baptist Church in Santa Marta, which is a suburb of Salamanca. And we've already been able to be able to preach and teach. Julie's been able to play the piano in the services. I've been able to be involved in the university ministry and being able to do a number of different things there. And we just enjoyed the time thoroughly already being able to minister here in Salamanca. On a cultural note, something we've noticed is that the older people, um, they go out every day in their best dress clothes, suits and ties and skirts for the ladies, and they walk around. They also go and meet their friends at parks or meet at the local cafe and um, talk with friends and the ladies at the parks, and they just talk with all of their friends. We just want to thank each and every one of you for your partnership with us in the gospel here in Salamanca, Spain. We are just beginning our ministry here. We're thankful for so many of you who are interested in this mission and pray for us on a regular basis. Thank you so much for your support, your prayers, and your commitment to see the gospel advance here in Salamanca. Oh, I praise the Lord for what he's done to answer our prayers and to bring them there with full support. and. Um, Good to hear from Anthony too, isn't it, at the end there. This video also happens to provide, as I mentioned, a brief glimpse into the folks' cultural awareness. Julie talked about the custom of older Spaniards dressing up at night, putting on their best and walking out uh, to meet with others and socialize out in open spaces. That's a little different than what goes on in our setting here, isn't it? We tend to dress down after work, not dress up. And uh, probably the tendency is to find 
uh, solace in the security of our homes more than it is to go out into public spaces and to socialize. They're picking up on that distinction. Uh, I also know just from them that they left most of their clothes back here because they didn't want to stand out as foreigners but wanted to dress as Spaniards, which is a good thing. And observations and accommodations that we would expect from skillfully uh, develop missionaries and we're thankful for them and the way they're thoughtfully working through these things and coming to understand this different culture but there will also be ways in which the folks must not adapt to their culture there are people in Spain who hate other people many are filled with bitterness many break God's law concerning sex within the bonds of marriage There's a thriving pornographic industry in Spain. Just as there are Spaniards who put on suit and tie and dresses and high heels to go out after work, so there are Spaniards who steal and cheat and lie, who are filled with selfishness, who get drunk and in innumerable ways violate the will of their Creator. In such aspects, the folks must not adopt the culture in which they live. We understand this process. They recognize that their calling is to live as faithful ambassadors of another homeland, the eternal city of Jesus Christ, which is our calling as well as we live out our life in the culture in which we find ourselves. One way we can fail this calling is to yield to the world's pressures to join in unfaithfulness to God. There is ever a pressure to join in with the darkness. But in another sense, one of the greatest hindrances of the gospel is when the world justly condemns us for committing sins they so often excuse in themselves. This is a dynamic we need to come to terms with. It's a dynamic all of us need to consider. I can be justly condemned for committing sins that the world accepts in their own life. Unbelievers do not have 2020 vision. Now we're close to 2020 vision when it comes to seeing themselves morally. But when it comes to seeing those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, the world gets pretty close. Pretty close to 2020 vision. They know when we're breaking God's law. And they're often very quick to mention it. And this is a major concern that is at the surface of much of what the Apostle Peter's teaching is in 1 Peter 2, 11-17, and even into further parts of the book. He's very concerned about believers living like unbelievers and hindering the Gospel. Let's make our way to 1 Peter chapter 2, and as we come to verse 11 today, we, mark, we come to a significant, albeit subtle, transition point in the book. would probably be ideal for there to be a chapter division here at 2.11. To this point, the Apostle has emphasized the transforming power of the Gospel in our lives, focusing on what God has done for us. And this is the ground and the root of all that follows in the book. God has begotten us again to a living hope. We have been born again by the living Word of God. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have embraced the cornerstone Jesus Christ. We've not stumbled over Him. We've seen Him to be who He is, the cornerstone. 
the foundation, the source of our life. We look forward now to an eternal inheritance awaiting the coming of the grace in Jesus Christ. And now having trusted the Gospel, what does He say of us? This high calling that we have in Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are in Christ because of all that He has done. All that He has done in giving and has given us in our salvation. But now the question arises, how shall we then live? What does this look like in our daily lives? How does a chosen race live? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, called to proclaim the excellencies of God. How do we live in this world as priests, as mediators of the glory of God to a needy world? Peter begins to address this question at 2.11 with a particular concern to counter any accusation against us that compromises the unbeliever's reception of the Gospel. We are to live in such a way that communicates the glories of God to a lost world. We are then, as we live out our life as priests before this world and before God, to be careful that we don't become a hindrance to the transfer of the Gospel. What does that look like? Well, first of all, I don't think it's exhaustive by any means, but it is certainly a comprehensive list in some sense of how we are to live. First of all, we're to abstain from fleshly passions. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's no accident that Peter addresses his readers as sojourners and as exiles. He means for us to perceive ourselves in a certain way. I'm passing through. This is not my home. I represent another homeland. I am a sojourner. I am an exile. Representing my homeland as God's chosen people, I must then abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. Our flesh is that which spawns and expresses sinful desires and cravings. We all have it. We've been delivered from it but there is a sense in which it has continuing influence upon us on some level. The flesh is a theolo- is kind of theological code word that describes who we are as rebels against God's will. We do not find God's commands natural. When He says to do something, we want to disobey. When He says don't do this, we find it often very natural to do it. And so the flesh carries out the passions that lead us to disobey the will of God. These God-denying longings wreak havoc on our souls. They are spiritually destructive. There are things that people do, we look at it and say, why do you do that? You're destroying your body. So it is with the passions that are within us with our soul. With the inner being and many times having its effects upon the body, we destroy ourselves by going against 
the will of God and listening to the cravings that are within. I want, I want us all to think on this for a moment. You have cravings. You have desires. Things you like and want that attack your soul. They dampen your spiritual well-being. Now just thinking that way is very countercultural. We live in a culture that says if you feel it and you want it, get it. Do it. And anybody that stands in the way of that is somehow does not have your best interest in view. But God here looks us in the eye and says you have passions and desires that are destroying you. Abstain from them. Learn to say no to your wishes. On some level, in some way, guided by the Word of God. It starts within. How do we represent Christ in this world? It starts within. It starts by learning to say no to sexual lust. Not because we want to, necessarily, but because it's God's counsel. And it's wise. It's what's best for our soul. To say no to greed and materialism. I want to be wealthy. I want things to be easier. I want to have more. I want to make decisions that don't honor God and His kingdom, but put more money in my pocket. Say no. Abstain. Bitterness and vengeful thoughts. There's people I want to destroy because they've tried to destroy me. We have to say no to such thoughts. Pride and self-promotion unloving treatment of others there's cravings there's desires that we have within us we need to abstain from those cravings again our culture says most of those things you should be free to do if you feel it go after it but as believers we need to think and learn to learn to think differently to abstain from the lust of the flesh that is how a holy nation of chosen people, a royal priesthood, called out of the darkness into God's light, functions. It functions, first of all, by starting with inner space and saying no to passions that lead me away from who I am in Christ. Secondly, we're to live honorably before the world. So to abstain from fleshly passions, verse 12, to live honorably before the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles read unbelievers, unconverted, those who have not, are not in Christ. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a strange verse. It's really easy to understand and then there's pieces of it that you go, huh? What, what exactly is that saying? Let's work through verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's straightforward. We're to care about what people think about how we live. We're to be careful that we live honorably in the sight of others. Now, we can't please everybody. There will be those who criticize no matter what, but we are, not, we are to live honorably. We're not to cheat or misuse people. Now let's think particularly about unbelievers. That's where he's oriented in his discussion here. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable. We're not to seek advantage for ourselves at their expense. We're to treat unbelievers with dignity and with respect. 
generally speaking, we are not to ridicule, criticize, or unnecessarily oppose unbelievers. But Peter also instructs us here in the second part, the next statement of verse 12, he encourages us, instructs us to anticipate that the unconverted will ignorantly charge us of evil doing. That's going to be the case. We know historically that early Christians were despised as a vile cult and the target of an empire-wide smear campaign. What was going on in the, among those Christians who loved one another? You can fill in the blanks. It was, there were horrible charges made against what that meant. Wild, unfounded rumors of horrific wickedness were routinely pinned on Christians. Oh, you're one of those people? We've heard about them. We've heard about you. This is what they faced all the time. Peter does not counsel his readers to overcome these false accusations with lawsuits, retaliatory measures, argumentative, defensive words. That's how you respond. Rather, he says, we silence these accusations with good deeds. So the idea, as he instructs them, is that they, they will, the unbelievers will accuse you of evil simply because you are followers of Christ. But when they get close to your life, make sure that all they see is the beauty of a good life. If they really care to get close and watch, what they see is beauty. Barclay tells the story of Plato. A man was making slanderous remarks about the philosopher and Plato said this wisely, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. That grasps the idea there. That's in a sense what Peter is saying. Live so that no one believes what they're saying. Now, we have the day of visitation here. What is that? Live honorably. They're going to speak evil of you as evildoers, but they may see your good deeds so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, this is one of those places where the, two, the options aren't happy because they're radically different. But the day of visitation may be the day of God's judgment or it may be the day of God's salvation. How's that for, for possibilities? But uh, working them two together, they really don't end up all that far apart. But it might be the day of visitation is when God comes in judgment and unbelievers recognize that the Christians that they spoke against were really just and good. Or it may mean, and I think there's some reasons to argue this way, that it's the day of visitation, that is the day of salvation. They speak ill of you as Christians. They don't even know what they're talking about, but they deride you. They speak ill of you, but there will be a day perhaps when the gospel is presented to them and in the light of that gospel, your life will not be a hindrance. They won't say, this is, this is amazing truth. Jesus did this for me. He died in my place to pay the penalty of my sin. He rose from death. Is it possible that there's reconciliation with God? then in their mind they're saying, well, there's this wonderful truth, but I know this person and that person who's embraced that and they're Christians and I don't want to live like them. Your life becomes a hindrance 
to the gospel that they receive on the day that Christ opens their eyes to see the truth. I think that's the idea. So live honorably among unbelievers. They will speak against you as evildoers, but may it be that on the day that the gospel is made clear, your life matches that gospel. It makes sense. It's not a hindrance to it. In the right sense of the word, then, we should be concerned about what people think of us as believers. In the right sense of the word. There's all kinds of things we need to say and believe, and we can't care at all about what people think about it. But there's other ways in which we really need to be conscious. What do people see in my life? There's nothing we can do when they falsely accuse us of hating people disrespecting other religions, fleecing members, and in a thousand ways opposing decent people. What we can do is silence our critics with godly living and refuse to be an impediment to the gospel. They may not like what they believe, but may they see in us people who treat other people with honor, with respect, as people made in the image of God. Thirdly, submit to governing authorities. That's how a priest lives in this world who's passing through. He submits to governing authorities. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He goes on to clarify, but let's stop there for just a moment. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Since God is our King and we are citizens of His kingdom, since we have been liberated by Christ, we are not free of the dictates of governing authorities in our land though we could draw that conclusion. Christ is the King. I am free in Him. I answer to God, not to the governing authorities. No, says Peter. Submit to those authorities. You notice what it says in verse 13. There's a phrase there we might miss. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Jesus is the King. God does reign sovereignly over all governments. But for the Lord's sake, submit to the government, to the human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors that are sent by him and so forth. Not because the governing authorities are always right or virtuous. Submit to governing authorities out of reverence for Christ. One of the ways we silence false accusations is by choosing to submit to the governing authorities. As Paul emphasized in Romans 13, God Himself ordains the governing authorities. Peter doesn't make so much a point of that here outside of this phrase, for the Lord's sake. But we can be sure he has more than evangelistic strategy in view. Submitting to the governing authorities is submitting to the will of God. At least generally speaking. Now when those governing authorities tell us to violate the authority of God, to disobey what He has said, then in that place we go to the higher authority. And we obey God and suffer whatever consequences are necessary because God is King. But the vast majority of rules, regulations, and laws are not against the will of God. And so we should be submissive to them. Rebelling against the laws of our land raises a barrier that impedes the gospel, and that's the issue. Unbelievers might disobey the governing authorities themselves, 
they don't have any problem breaking the law wherever they can get away with it. But if a follower of Christ does the same thing, do unbelievers treat them the same way? No. They point the finger. They dismiss the Gospel. They're looking for any excuse that they can find to not do what God wants them to do. And so they can point to us and say, well, look at that. Look what you're doing. For the Lord's sake, then, submit to the governing authorities. Because He is sovereign and has called you to it. But secondly, evangelistically, this is essential. You're a priest here to represent your, your kingdom. Live honorably in light of the authorities and their ideas. So every human institution, verse 13, notice it there now as we continue, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. I think that's by the emperor. So there's an authority structure that's here. And why do they send them? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the basic point of human government. Now you might wonder if this is really the case sometimes. To praise those who do good. It seems like sometimes the laws punish those who do good. But let's remember, Peter is living in the Roman Empire. The governing authorities were thoroughly corrupt. Peter himself has been thrown in prison because of his stand for Christ. And this empire is going to take Peter's life eventually. So we're not talking about a really nice emperor. And Peter's just saying, boy, this is a good guy. Get behind him and do what he tells you to do. He's saying, no, this is a principle of subjection. It doesn't matter who the emperor is. These were godless, godless people that were ruling the empire at that time. He says, be subject to them. As it says here, the purpose of the governing authorities is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Generally speaking, God sovereignly ordains governments to resist evildoers and to commend those who do good. The emperor and on down to other officials. Commending those who do good. I've got to talk to you about this. I'm happy to. But I met with uh, our mayor here last week and a number of other clergy that were in that meeting. And she convened this meeting, I think, in fact, to commend those who do good. That was the point of the meeting. She asked that I pass on to you that she is anxious to see our community demonstrating acts of kindness and respect toward one another. Not a bad thing, is it? That's what a governing authority should do. That's what she should want for this community. And we should get behind that. This week is I Love Burnsville Week, and she's asking that we reach out to our neighbors to express kindness and generosity. What's she doing? She's calling us to do good. And we should be at the front end of that. And seek to pass on whatever goodness we can as we honor people. So it says to us then, in a, more, in a broader way, beyond our own neighborhood here, as citizens in our various communities, we are not to be lawbreakers. We are to honor traffic laws. We are to pay our taxes. We're not to poach animals to steal the property of others or misappropriate funds. We are not to vandalize. We're not to harm others. And admittedly, there are gray zones. 
not always easy in our litigious society to know when an ordinance is intended for nothing other than to forestall lawsuit should the entirely unexpected happen. And how do you live in the middle of all that? But we should deny the urge to be impatient. So often where we break the laws, it's just pure impatience. And we should avoid the urge to be selfish. The law applies to everybody else, and I expect them to keep it because if they don't, it causes me trouble, but it doesn't really apply to me. It's more convenient if I do this. But if everybody else did it, we'd be in big trouble. We shouldn't live like that. The urge to harm others, we should reject and rather seek to be known as law-abiding citizens. We're respectful of the laws of the land, of the ordinances that we live under, and we strive to bring ourselves in line with it. There's not one of us that can do it, perfectly but we need to be known as those kind of people why notice this why verse 15 for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people there will be people who assume the worst of christians this was certainly true of peter's readers Peter instructs us here to silence the accusations by honoring the governing authorities and the laws and regulations of our community and nation. I know, you know, many of them are just plain stupid. There's no question about it. They're just nuts. And you wonder, who put this in place? But if I'm thinking in a kingdom way as a nation of priests, I ask other questions. I don't stop there at this is dumb but I consider how do I line up with the world in which I live and how do I exemplify the saving grace of Christ in my actions. Our ultimate quest is not to get our way, to gain an advantage for ourselves, to be wise in our own eyes. Our duty is to silence the ignorant criticism of others so as not to contribute to any hindrance that they might find in responding to the gospel. People do not need, hear me, people do not need the transforming power of Jesus to break the law. And if they look at us as lawbreakers, they're going to say, I don't need your Jesus. I can do that without him. If we break the law, unbelievers will point the finger, and the concern is they'll dismiss the significance of their relationship to Christ. This is a possibility priests of Christ cannot permit. So he continues under the same theme. Live, verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. As redeemed by God, we are free in Christ, and God is our highest authority. So when we are called to submit to governing authorities, we should not think of this as a servile bondage. We are free in Christ, but we should not permit this freedom to justify or cover up breaking of the law. We are the servants of Christ, and so we are to demonstrate this reality by doing nothing to harm the spread of the gospel. Not about what I can get away with. It's what am I saying with my life. 
Christians of Peter's day were sometimes falsely accused of sedition. They, they, they did not do what the community wanted them to do. So it was seen as a rebellion against the empire. One way this criticism was to be squelched was for the believers to honor the governing authorities, to remain above reproach in their communities, to live a life of faithfulness before God in subjection to these authorities. I don't know if Peter is running out of time or what, but now he gives us a string. Very quick. But we link them with the others. We are, verse 17 then, to honor everyone. Honor everyone. How does such a priest live? They honor everyone. All people bear the image of God. We're not to treat unbelievers with disrespect because they're unbelievers. It it seems to me that there are some churches that just miss this memo. It seems that the church exists to bash unbelievers. We're to honor them. We're to have respect for those who know not Christ. Our neighbors, our classmates, our workmates, family, friends, even strangers should be treated with honor. It's not always possible to live at peace with everyone, but we should try as far as it depends on us. And in any event, there are no groups of people we should not honor. Not telemarketers. Not nasty neighbors. Not knuckle-headed drivers on the road. In-laws who cause you misery. Checkout clerks who don't do their job very well. Those who hold political and religious beliefs you vehemently oppose. We're not to dishonor them. That's not how we're going to get anywhere. We're to respect them as people made in the image of God as much as we disagree sometimes with how they drive or what they think. In our past jail ministry, Paul and I had opportunities to work with murderers. You can honor a murderer. There's things you can't do. There's a level of respect there and certainly a hatred for what they did, but you can treat them like people. That's what they are. And by the grace of God alone, they're redeemable. Just like we are. Honor everyone. Jesus washed Judas' feet. And he spoke directly but respectfully to him at the Last Supper. No one we meet will be worse than the son of perdition. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. There's a special relationship of love we are to have with fellow believers in Christ. Jesus taught us that by our love for one another, unbelievers will recognize that we belong to Jesus. That there's a unity among us that is unique. The Apostle John taught us that love for one another is the necessary evidence that we are genuine believers. Our love for one another is very significant. How will we love other believers this week? Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Perhaps there's a purposeful contrast with honor the emperor that is to follow. Fear God. Ultimately, you fear Him. We are to fear God above all. To reverence God above all others. To live 
before Him with respect and reverence and obedience. Obviously, it's just a brief bullet point list, but he says then honor the emperor. He already said honor everybody. It's almost like he wants to say, yeah, I'm going to say it again. That guy in the throne, on the throne in Rome, bad news. But respect him as one that has been placed there by God. Honor even the emperor. Not an easy call to Christians suffering under the rule of the emperor, but as believers we must recognize that dishonoring the ruling authorities in our nation erects an impediment to the gospel. Politically minded people can rip on the president. They can badmouth him, they can ridicule him, they can call his sanity into question and offer any number of unfounded conspiracy charges against him. I don't believe that's how ambassadors for Christ act for reason. A chosen nation of believers, a royal priesthood, a people called out of the darkness to proclaim the excellencies of their Savior, honor the president. They have a greater agenda than politics. They may not agree with the president. There is a legitimate role in a democracy for vigorous disagreement and debate. But president bashing is unbecoming to a follower of Christ. I believe our president is a direct and willing contributor to the slaughter of untold innocence in our land. I believe he has blood on his hands. I believe he's in brazen rebellion against God's design for marriage and for family. I believe he holds a false gospel of salvation by good works. But I honor him as the present president that God has ordained to rule us. And we should respect that. I pray for him. I grieve over much of what he believes and does. But I do not and I cannot before God and with clear conscience hate him. Conspiracy All we need is the word sin. That's conspiracy enough. A conspiracy that's in our own hearts. And we need to deal with. God calls me to honor the emperor. To treat him the president, I know. (laughs) But we're to honor uh, those who are in leadership. To treat him with dignity as a man made in the image of God who needs our prayers. May God help us honor whoever holds that office to display respect to a watching world of those who God has placed in position. Now, again, a word, and briefly here. We know this well. We need to continue to repeat it as we work through the epistles and certainly through this text of Scripture. We must keep in view the proper relationship between indicatives and imperatives. What does that mean? The indicatives of what God has done. Fact. Revelation. Reality. Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin and rose from the dead and through trust in that message gives you eternal life. He makes you the chosen nation. You don't earn your position there. This is what God has done. Based on what He has done, rooted in what He has done, then we are to follow by living a certain way. 
The imperatives here are not given to us. These commands are not given to us so that we'll all be really good little people. And that we can find within ourselves to do these things that He's calling us to. We won't. But is it not interesting that He doesn't say here the way now that now that God has saved you, the way to live out your life is through religious ritual. To follow some certain tradition and to become a certain kind of person that follows through these paces in life. No, what he's saying is if you have come to the saving faith in Christ, it's going to affect your relationships. It's going to affect the way that you relate to the losers in our society, as some people would call them. Do you honor them? It's going to come to how you relate to the president, to the mayor, to the governing officials. It's going to relate how you love one another as believers. It's going to affect the way that you revere God. Your relationships will be changed by this dynamic new birth that God brings about within your soul. Don't talk about religious ritual. Don't talk about all the things that I'm doing in order to gain God's favor. His favor has been placed upon you if you've come to saving faith in Him. And one evidence of it is how you treat other people. How do you relate? I may speak to some here, and I relate to you by saying you need to embrace this message. You need to embrace Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of your sins. You're chasing a lot of pleasures, a lot of things you want to do, And to give God the steering wheel of your life, no way does that sound very interesting. But let me say something. There's a blindness that you have. You don't recognize the beauty of Christ. You don't perceive it yet. If you come to perceive what it means to walk every day with sins forgiven in a right relationship with God, you'll see a beauty you've never understood before. For those of us who've seen this, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who know what it means to have a conscience washed clean by Christ's work, we need to ask ourselves, are we living in community as a kingdom of priests mediating the glories of Christ to our world? Or are we on the one hand simply imitating them Or on the other hand, putting impediments in their way to the gospel by the way that we live? Are we laboring to eliminate every possible impediment to the gospel through holy living? Are we living in such a way as to point others to the beauty and transforming power of the life we have through faith in Christ? This is our high calling. May God find us busy in it this week as we, as we relate to others. Pointedly, there's not much that I can say here about the relationships in your life. How do you relate to people? What's going on, first of all, within? And the passions of the flesh. How do you re- relate to the community? To the leadership? To the laws of our land? To God Himself? These are questions we need to ask ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to do a work within us to align our relationships with the Gospel that we embrace and the salvation that we've been given by Christ. Let's do that work in talking with each other as we break. 
Let's do that work in prayer now and in our time of meditation as we come before the Lord. Father, we need Your help and we need Your grace. You are a merciful God. How we know that. How we thank You for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, we sense in our relationships with others that there's a lot of work to do and we ask that You'll do that work and bring into right relationship with You anyone who is not reconciled to You through trust in the Gospel. Please do this work in us. Bring conviction and change. Thank You for this opportunity to sit under the cleansing power of the Word of God. Cleanse us, I pray, through its purifying light. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's.